Hey, I'm Ellen from Jacksonville, Florida. Hey, I'm Cody from Edmonton, Alberta. I'm Eric from Nashville. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You know, a lot of performers can point to a moment that was their break into the business. The guys in Mob Deep definitely have one. They're a rap duo. They go by the names Prodigy and Havoc. In the early 90s, they were just high school kids with a dream. One day, the way Prodigy tells it, they waited outside the offices of Def Jam Records with their demo tape and a pair of headphones. They waited there begging anyone walking inside to stop, put on a headset, and listen. And eventually, someone did. He was like, all right, I'll give y'all a listen. He put the headphones on, and he listened to the music, and then he took it off, and he was like, you know what? I like you guys. He's like, where y'all from? We said, we're from Queens. So he was from Queens, too, so he was like, all right, look, I'm going to bring y'all inside the office. I'm going to introduce y'all to some people. You know, I'm going to try to help y'all. That was a major turning point for us. We had a connection. He brought us and made us insiders now. Like, that's how we felt. The guy who stopped to listen, it was Q-Tip from A Tribe Called Quest. It's Bullseye. Coming up, my conversation with the rapper Prodigy, who's half of the seminal hip-hop duo Mob D. We'll talk about the group's big break, growing up with sickle cell anemia, and the challenge of an aggressive, sometimes abusive father who expected him to always be tough. My father was a, a karate sensei. He would always push me and make me fight people. You know what I mean? He was like, oh, go fight that kid and take a knife with you, too. And that's what I did. Plus, L.A. Times book critic Carolyn Kellogg share some of her all-time favorites. And I'll tell you why you've been paying way too little attention to Randy Newman all these years. That's coming up on Bullseye. Don't you miss it. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest prodigy is one of the fathers of hardcore hip-hop. As a teenager in the early 90s, he and his partner Havoc found an East Coast answer to the emerging West Coast gangster sound. As Mob Deep, their tone was dark, eerie and minimal. Their lyrics were cold and brutal. They didn't yell because they didn't need to. The words spoke for themselves. Let's take a listen to Prodigy's opening verse from Shook Ones Part 2, the epical single from the epical record, The Infamous. He recorded it when he was barely out of his teens. Check it out now. Prodigy spent a few years in prison on gun charges and was released in 2011. We spoke that year about his autobiography, My Infamous Life. 
one of the key issues in your book and in your life is that you have sickle cell anemia. Um, and I, I wonder if you could, before we start getting into the story of your life, just tell us, well, I mean, for starters, what that is. Well, sickle cell anemia is an hereditary disease that's passed down from, you know, your mother and father. And basically, it's like a rare blood disorder where your blood cells change from a round shape, to, you know, normal round blood cell shape to a sickle shape. And they start interlocking with each other and it causes clotting and it causes pain wherever that happens at. And it's like a domino effect. It just spreads out throughout your body and um, the pain increases and, uh, you know, it, pro- it gets progressively worse uh, if you don't take care of it right away. As soon as you feel the pain, you're supposed to get, go to the hospital or, or take pain medication for it. What's the first time that you remember having a sickle cell attack? You know, I was real young, so I, I really didn't have a full understanding of what I was going through. Um, you know, I knew I had, I had something. I, you know, I wasn't like other kids because my parents they told me, you know, you got sick as hell, and you know, all I knew I was just in crazy pain, and that's all I knew. You know, it was just that pain, and I want to get better. I want to feel. I want to feel good. How did it affect your life, especially as a kid? It made me a real angry kid. Um, you know, I was angry at God. You know, and I used to sit there and pray to God, like, please take this pain away. But it's like, you know, it it, it it was nothing magical happening, nothing. It was nothing there, basically. I felt like uh, my prayers were not being answered, you know, and it, it, it made me real moody. I had, like, an attitude problem um, growing up as a young child. You grew up in uh, an interesting circumstance. You sort of grew up in in a bunch of different worlds all at once. Um, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your uh, uh, grandmother and grandfather with whom you spent a lot of time and and also about your mother and father. Yeah, my grandmother and my grandfather, they actually met at the Cotton Club in Harlem. Um, My grandmother was one of the first Cotton Club dancers. And my grandfather was a jazz musician, and so he played in the band at the Cotton Club. So, you know, that's how they met, and um, they got married and all that. And my, my grandmother actually started a business in, her, in, the, in the basement of her home in Jamaica, Queens. She started a dance school business. And my grandfather, you know, he, he had a lot of jazz albums. He was in a big band with uh, Quincy Jones. He's actually a member of the, the Jazz Hall of Fame. Yeah, he's in the Jazz Hall of Fame, and, you know, growing up, I just saw a lot of uh, famous people come into the house to see him, like, you know, famous jazz musicians like Dizzy Gillespie and, you know, uh, uh, Frank Foster, you know, just different people like that. And, um, yeah, that's I grew up around all of their show business. Your folks had both also been in show business and in the music industry themselves. Your uh, father sang with a doo-wop group called The Chanters, and, and your mother was a member of the uh, Phil Spector group, The Crystals, although she she joined shortly after they um, had their biggest string of hits. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
it was it was uh it was definitely crazy, you know what I mean, to to see all the hear all the stories, you know, that, that my mother used to tell me about, you know, touring with with the Supremes, Diana Ross and the snakes in the industry. Like that that'll try to rob you, you know, for your credit and you know, and your money and all that. She worked for Phil Spector, who's basically one of the all time kings of the questionable music industry guys. Yeah, exactly. So she's been through it, you know. She's been through doing a lot of work and getting a little for it. You know, and my father, you know, he was in that group, the Channers. They had a couple of lukewarm records, but uh, I think they never really took off like that, you know what I mean? But they still had the experience in the music industry. And, um, yeah, so, you know, the whole the whole business was just always in my family, and I grew up around that. And um, I saw a lot. I learned a lot at an early age about show business, about how to put on a show, about how to, you know, the, um, how the behind the scenes works to put something like that together. Your dad was uh, a heroin addict, um, and you write in the book about finding out about that. Um, how how old were you? I had to be about maybe around seven. Maybe around yeah, around six, seven years old, when I started noticing certain things about my father, um, you know, just little strange ways, you know, staying in the bathroom too long, going to a friend's house and telling me to wait in room, one room while they go in another room, and just little strange things I started noticing, and then um, you know, he finally came out and told me. You know, one day, of what he was what he was going through, and what he was doing. So that was, you know, that was kind of crazy. That was kind of crazy to, to to see all that, and and just to, for him to tell me that, I was just like, wow, okay, uh, yeah. Did you even understand it as a as a little kid? Yeah, I did. I did understand um, when he explained it to me, and. You know, other family members explained it to me also what was going on. So, uh, yeah, they, they explained it to me in a way where I, I definitely understood what was happening. I want to play this uh, verse that you wrote about your dad in a song from one of your more recent solo albums. The song is called Veterans Memorial Part 2. Uh, let's hear a little bit of it. Strike me down if I'm lying. I miss my pops. All I got is lonely teardrops and memories of him teaching me to hurt people with my bare hands and how to shoot people. I remember me and him stuck at jewelry store. He did the sticking. I was in the getaway car. Pops came out with a big bag full of jewelry. We had a high speed chase with Nassau County. I was eight years old. My pops was drama. They locked him up and sent me home to mama. I miss the dad. I wish the dad would please come back. I need your help. And everybody that's got somebody deceased, I know you feel the same. Spirit go live through me. That was a verse from my guest, the Grammy Award-winning rapper, Prodigy. So this is a scene that you also describe in the book, and it's something that I could... You know, I can wrap my head around the idea of your dad, you know, just being a a general, low-to-mid-level criminal about town, you know, doing the occasional robbery and so forth. But I can't imagine the idea of him packing his kid in the passenger seat while he does it 
tell me about what was what was going on with your dad that he he robbed this jewelry store and you know dropped the bag of jewelry in your lap in the passenger seat of the car you know my father he was a drinker too he was a real heavy drinker like his favorite drink was snaps you know what i mean peppermint snaps peach snaps he loved all that so I, the only way I could really make sense out of it is I think he might have been drunk that day when he did that. You know, because it just, it just seemed like that's not normal. You know what I mean? Like, why would you do that? And he was, a, he was an intelligent individual. So I think maybe he was drinking that day, and um, he just took it a little overboard and forgot who he was with. You know what I mean? And didn't think about it until after he did it. Like, well, I'm bugging right now. It seems like with with your your sickle cell and you being small, um, especially as a kid, and having to be in different worlds at the same at, at all these different times. Your your mom uh, uh, lived in more than one place. You uh, went to a, a variety of different schools that you had to be tough f- from when you were very young. Yeah, I mean, you know, growing up, I couldn't always get involved with the activities with all the other kids because if I overwork my body, it would trigger my pain, you know. So there were definitely times where, you know, growing up especially in Long Island, um, in Hempstead, where, uh, you know, pe- like other kids wanted to challenge me. You know what I mean? They wanted to, you know, push my butt, see if they could push my buttons or whatever and see, you know, if I could fight or or what have you and things like that. Taking my kindness for weakness or taking my quietness and laid back style for weakness. You know, um, yeah, and I've been dealing with that for basically all my life. You know what I mean? When I was young, all the way up to today. So I got I got into a few fights when I was a young kid, when I was like, you know, around that same age, six, seven years old. And, um, you know, my, my father was a, a karate sensei. He had his own karate school. And he told me some, a few things about fighting. And uh, he would always push me, he would make me fight people. You know what I mean? He was like, oh, go, go fight that kid. You know, don't don't and take a knife with you too, just in case you know he don't let him don't let him beat you up. You don't stab him. Well, my father would tell me things like that, and that's what I did. You know what I mean? I would go outside and he would make me fight, and I would beat the kid up because I ain't trying to get beat up on my father. You know what I mean? I, my father, I was scared of my father. Yeah, that's how I was growing up. Um, the sickle cell, you know, it definitely made it where, you know, I had to prove myself a little bit. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. My guest is the rapper prodigy of the hardcore hip-hop duo Mob Deep. We spoke in 2011. It was the same year he was released from prison and just after the release of his autobiography, My Infamous Life. You started when you were about 11, 12 years old getting into two things, and those were hip-hop and crime um 
as you describe in the book, just kind of a real grab bag of various low to mid-level crimes. Tell me a little bit about where you were at at that point in your life when you were like 11, 12 years old, up until you were 13, 14 years old. When you were 14 years old, you bought your first car. What was going on with you in, in that period of time? That period of time was like probably my most rebellious time. Um, you know, my, my pops, he was, uh, he was on the run for a while. And so he wasn't around for the discipline, you know, and, you know, my mom, she tried her best, but I was like hanging out in the street, making new friends. I was, um, you know, I went from moving, I went from living in Long Island to moving to Queens and left Rack City. Um, so I was making new friends in different neighborhoods and learning new things. And, uh, yeah, I started hanging out a lot, you know, with my new friends. And we started, you know, getting into a little more mischief than ever before. I started selling drugs when I moved to Queens, um, you know, because I, I noticed that everybody in that neighborhood out there, you know, they were doing that. And most of them were my friends, you know what I mean? So I wanted some of that, too. I wanted to get some of that easy money. And it had the nice clothes and the, and the jewelry that everybody uh, saw was having. And uh, so I started doing things like that. And I, I actually got caught, like, the second day of me selling some drugs, you know, being a crack dealer or whatever. The second day I was out there selling some drugs, I got caught by these, by these plainclothes detectives. And they, they actually let me go. They took the drugs from me. And they let me go because I looked at I was like, 12 years old around that age and I looked at like I was seven probably like eight like I looked at real little and young you know what I mean so they were like what the hell you he was like yo give me that get out of here go home yeah so you know that that kind of shook me up I was scared after that to, to uh to go out there and sell some drugs after that so I was like you know what I'm gonna just chill from that yeah but you know I was getting into other trouble things you know just started drinking uh, beer, started smoking weed, and uh, at an early age, you know what I mean, uh, 12, um, and, uh, you know, just hanging out real late, going to parties, you know, having sex, just just, just out there and, and getting in all kinds of trouble, where I was, uh, you know, just manipulating things into my advantage, you know what I mean, um, you know, rob a few people or do whatever we had to do, you know, or whatever we thought was fun to do, you know, to get some money. That was my badass age. <laughs> How'd you get into emceeing? Um, around that same time, you know, um, there was this there was this uh, producer from Queensbridge named Marley Maul, and he had put out this album called In Control. And um, it was a compilation album of different Queensbridge artists and artists from Queens and maybe a couple artists from Brooklyn. And um, one of the most popular songs on that album was uh, a song called The Symphony. So when I heard that, that was like the first song that really made me stop everything. Like, whoa, this song is, this song is like incredible right here. Like the lyrics that they were saying and the beat 
it made me look at rap different like hold up this is something really that I really want to do with myself like I want to do that too you know I wanted that you know so I decided to chase after that now you started uh, sort of working towards a career as a professional musician when you were still a, a, like a relatively young teenager in part because you had these family members who had some connection in the music industry and so they knew what the deal was they knew how someone becomes a recording artist and uh the first song that you ever uh, got that was uh, that you ever recorded that was released was when you were like 15 or 16 years old and i, I want to play a little bit of it um it was on the boys in the hood soundtrack uh on a song by an r&b group called high five it's called too young Time passes, I flow with the swiftness, G. Showing you all that I'm with this continuous flavor. You don't want to savor. And those without no clout will have to pay for this dope You ask who wrote this, the white folks, the Aussie, and Aussie quote this. Doctors evaluate, place we eliminate. Create the great that I wait as I meditate. For those who can't keep up with the dope rhyme, huh? I waste no time for this. They won't come to return the life of some. So for now, I guess we're just too young. When do you feel like, as a teenager, or did you feel all along like you became you as an MC? You got past that point of wanting to be Cool G Rap or wanting to be Craig G and started projecting your own real self onto 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 your uh, songs? Um, I had to be... Right after that, that Boys in the Hood soundtrack came out. I was uh I went to go visit my father while he was on the run in California for another crime he had committed. And uh while we were out there, Boys in the Hood actually was was released into the theaters and it came out. So we went to to see it on the on the um I think it might have been the premiere night. And we in the movie theater watching it. And I had no idea about movie soundtracks. I didn't know how it works. I didn't know they was going to play it in the movie or, or none of that. So while we sitting there watching the movie, the song comes on. And me and my pops just jump up like, yo, we got a song in the movie, a song in the movie. You know what I'm saying? Like, we were real excited about that and hype. Like, that felt good. And it felt like I accomplished something, like... And I really got to see the results of trying. You know what I mean? When you try hard enough to get at something, you know, it feels good when you see some results. You know what I mean? That makes you want to go further. More of my conversation with Prodigy after a break. Plus, if you've been looking for a great book to read, LA Times book critic Carolyn Kellogg will recommend a couple of her all-time favorites. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, I'm Justin McElroy. I'm Travis McElroy. I'm Griffin McElroy. We're three brothers. It's not a coincidence. We have a show. It's called My Brother, My Brother Me. It's an advice show for the modern era. Uh, sometimes we also take questions from the Yahoo Answer Service. Hey, guys, how many push-ups does it take to look like a werewolf? <laughs> <laughs> That's a fine question, Griffin. We'll answer that one and so much more, including questions from readers about love and navigating the waters of society. 
Subscribe on iTunes or get it online at MaximumFun.org. We're brothers. We're experts. And we're sorry. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. My guest is the rapper Prodigy, half of the hip-hop duo Mob Deep. His new book of urban fiction is called HNIC. You had some seriousness of purpose about you. It seems like one of the big turning points in your career is you had already hooked up with Havoc, who uh, who you knew from school and was a talented MC and became your partner in what became Mob Deep, originally called uh, Poetical Prophets, if I'm not yeah. if I'm not misremembering yeah, that. That's it. And um, you were you were trying to get you were trying to get a deal for this group. Essentially, by hanging out around record companies, <laughs> yeah, yeah, mainly Def Jam. <laughs> like hanging, when I say around, I mean like literally, like down at the bottom of the stairs or whatever, or right outside the front door. Exactly, right outside. You had like a demo tape that that I guess you had on a Walkman, and tell me about the tell me about when you finally got someone to listen to it who who got excited. Yeah, so what we used to do is we. You know, we made this 50-song demo tape when me and Havoc first met. We went ahead and made a demo tape. and um, That's good, because every A&R is going to want to know that uh, a new artist can record 49 or more songs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we made all these songs. It's crazy. When me and Havoc made songs, we just make a lot of songs for some reason, ever since the beginning, you know, when we first met. So anyway, we had this 50-song demo and our next step was, all right, how are we going to get it to be heard? So we looked at the back of the albums, and it had the address to all the labels. So we was like, all right, which one are we going to pick? So we picked Def Jam to go to first, because that was like the best thing popping at the time. So we took the address down, and we cut out of school, hopped on the train, and went down to Def Jam. So now we're standing outside, because, you know, they're not letting us in, of course. So we're standing outside. Waiting for artists to come out, you know what I mean. Waiting for whoever walks out this door, we just gonna stop them. I'm like, yo, could you please give our music a listen real quick? You know what I mean. We we rappers, we got some music. We trying to get signed to Def Jam, so we did that for a while. And a lot of people was just like, oh, I ain't got time for that, shorty. Uh, you know, they walked away. Some people just looked at us and ignored us and kept walking. Um, but then it's uh, one of these rappers that was uh, affiliated with Def Jam at that time was a rapper by the name of Q-Tip. And he was from a group called the Trial Called Quest. So Q-Tip actually stopped. And he was like, all right, I'll give y'all a listen. He put the headphones on and he listened to the music. He actually listened to a couple of songs out there. And then he took it off and he was like, you know what? I like you guys. He's like, where y'all from? I said, we're from Queens. So he was from Queens, too. So he was like, all right, look, I'm going to bring you all inside the office. I'm going to introduce you out to some people. And, you know, I'm going to try to help you all. So that was a major turning point for us. You know, we, we now we were inside. We had a connection, an uh, insider, you know what I mean? And, we, and he brought us and made us insiders now. Like, that's how we felt. When I was reading that part of the book, I was imagining Q-Tip, like, this is the early 1990s. I was imagining Q-Tip as as tribe dressed in 1991 or 1992 in like uh, African print baggy cotton pants and a dashiki yeah. and all that kind of thing. And you 
I was imagining from I was imagining my image of you maybe from like the Shook Ones video, which came a couple years later. Um, but a little skinny kid in, um, in you know, in the street fashion of that time, which was more about looking grimy <laughs> than anything else. And I was imagining the two of you going up there and what an unlikely pair you were. Yeah, I mean, you know, our style wasn't too different at that time because at that time, you know, like our name was Poetical Prophets, you know what I mean? So, uh, you know, that's that's like was the little phase that we were going through. You know, at that time you had uh, this rap group called the X-Clan, you had this rap group, you know, the Trial Court Quest. So a lot of it was like uh, real conscious rap about, you know, the black culture and, and, and uh, you know, being aware of, of your culture and all that. So people were, were rocking you, African medallions and different stuff. Were you stuff. rhyming about that kind of stuff? No, we weren't actually rhyming about that stuff, but that was like the style at that time. Like we were rocking that. We had African medallions, you know what I mean, sometimes. That was the trend at that time. That was the most popular trend was the African medallions and, like, uh, you know, certain um, shirts and, like, African canes. Like, a lot of people had that back in the days. So, you know, we wasn't too far from what Q-Tip was doing, you know what I mean? But we were definitely different. We weren't uh, we weren't that style, really, you know what I mean? We would just, you know, we would just throw on some of the, the trendy stuff at the time, maybe, you know what I mean? But that wasn't really our style, really, what we what we were about and what we represented in life and what our actions in life didn't really match that, you know what I mean? You signed a record deal as a teenager and put out an album um, that flopped. Um, it didn't flop colossally, but it was not a success, and you got dropped um, not that long after it came out. Um, you know, you, you had some minor regional hits and, and so on, but you were essentially back at zero. And I wondered as I was reading you, reading your book, whether you thought about, whether you thought about doing something else with your life or whether it was always the plan that it was going to be you and Havoc and Mob Deep and the music industry that was going to be your future yeah when we when we um put out our first album and then we had got dropped because it didn't do good uh it was like devastating to us we were like no no this can't be happening we were like why did this happen and we really had to recalibrate ourselves and really pull ourselves back down to earth um and figure out why that just happened to us and once we figured it out, you know, it was like, okay, this is how you fix it. You know what I mean? This is what we did wrong, and this is how you fix it. So that's what we did. We just got immediately got to work on fixing it because we knew this is what we wanted to do with our life. You know, this is the music that we love and that we live, and we didn't want nothing else. It was this or nothing. Like, that was our attitude at that time. It was this or nothing. We didn't want nothing else. So we had to fix the problem. You ended up making this record called The Infamous. And, and we heard earlier Shook One's part two. But let's hear a, another one of the most noteworthy tracks from that album, Survival of the Fittest. Mm-hmm. 
there's a war going on outside, no man is safe from. You could run, but you can't hide forever from these streets that we done took. You walkin' with your head down, scared to look. You shook, 'cause ain't no such things as halfway crooks. They never around when the beef cooks in my part of town. It's similar to Vietnam. Now we all grown up and old, and be on the cops' control. They better have the riot gear ready, tryna back me and get rock steady. Buy the Mac one double, I touch you and leave you with not much to go home with. My skin is thick, 'cause I'll be up in the mix of action. If I'm not at home, puffin' live, relaxin'. New York got it again in the press. So I wear a slug proof underneath my guest. God bless my soul before I put my foot down and begin to stroll into the drama I built. And all unfinished beef, you will soon be killed. Put us together. It's like mixing vodka and milk. I'm going out blasting, taking my enemies with me. And if not, they scar, so they will never forget me. Lord, forgive me. The Hennessy got me not knowing how to act. I'm falling and I can't turn back. Or maybe it's the words from my man Killer Black that I can't say. So what's left the untold fact? Until my death, my goals will stay alive. Survival of the fit, only the strong survive. Yo, yo. we live in this till the day that we die. Survival of the fit, only the strong survive. As I was revisiting the infamous, I was thinking about how different it felt from other things that were out at the time. And by the time this record dropped, there were other people talking about street life on record, you know, especially. West Coast, uh, you know, at the time, so-called gangster rappers. Mm-hmm. But there was something very different about the tone of what you guys were talking about. In that, if I listen to um, a, a West Coast gangster record from the early 1990s, it's sort of gleeful in a way. And it's like an adventure. It's like a movie that's exaggerated like a, like a exploitation movie or something. And when I listen to your records from that time, they're dark and I guess I would say kind of sad. They feel they feel kind of sad to me. Um, yeah. I mean, it definitely had that element to it. Um, I think the reason the reason behind that was because uh, number one, you know, the environment that we were in. And then, um, you know, that we came up in where we, we spent our time at, you know, where, where we live, basically, is, um, you know, it's serious, man. There's a lot of crime, murder, drugs, poverty. It's crazy, you know. Poverty pushed people to do a lot of wild things. So, you know, coming from that, that whole element right there, and uh, also Queensbridge, you know, that project's right there. You know, that's the biggest projects in America. And it's like, it's something real special about that that hood it, is that uh, a lot of trends, you know, came from that from that hood. We started a lot of trends. Like, we created a lot of uh, slang, uh, styles of dress, um, even the way our beats sound. You know what I mean? When we... When we really got down to it and mastered our sound and our, and our production skills, um, our sound was like real sinister and dark and, and uh, evil sounding almost. Because of that, you know, the lyrics that go on top of it, we're going to write something that matches 
the sound of the beat. And it's only it's only natural that's gonna come out matching that sound, you know, and and the whole lifestyle that we were living. And um and you know, of course like the the new slang that people really never heard and all the new styles and all the stuff that, you know, we were doing that was basically like uh unique to that neighborhood, you know, that that gave it the whole feel like this is something new right here. You know, they doing something new, like, you know, when Nas came out and, and then the infamous dropped after that, it was just like, wow, was, these dudes is on, is on another level right here. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. My guest is the rapper prodigy of the hardcore hip-hop duo Mob Deep. We spoke in 2011. It was the same year he was released from prison and just after the release of his autobiography, My Infamous Life. I want to play a song that you recorded just a couple of years ago, um, sort of jumping forward in the timeline 10 years or so. Um, it's from one of your solo records, and it's called Mac-10 Handle. Okay. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about the place you were in when, when you wrote this before we hear it. When I wrote that song, uh, I was just thinking of a concept where it was a revenge song, like somebody out for revenge, you know what I mean? It's payback time. Like, James Brown had that song, The Big Payback. Like, that's that's what this song was like. You know, it was a payback record, a revenge record. It's definitely more crazy than it is karate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's hear my guest Prodigy and his song, Mac-10 Head. I sit alone in my dirty-ass room staring at candles. High on drugs. Yeah. All alone with my hand on the Mac-10 handle. Yeah, yeah. Scheming on scheming. I find myself in my four cornered room watching hard boy. I feel like I'm crazy. My brain on drugs. My bulletproof on run. Flats. Later tonight, I'ma look for cuz. Just ride through his hood. And when I see that chump, I'ma jump out the truck and dump my gun. You ain't never been through it. So you scared of that kind of ish? Hit me on the song and say, peep, pop a lot of ish. Too much of that gangster music. Nah, this reality rap. I really go through it in the Interrogation rooms, I don't crack again. I got none for you. Talk to my lawyer. It's nowadays it's hard to kill. Be careful where you pull that trigger. They got you on film. They got eyes in the sky. We under surveillance. That on star on your car. Track A, where you been? Gotta watch what I say. They tapping my cell phone. They wanna sneak and peek inside of my home. I'm paranoid and it's not the weed. In my rear view mirror, these cars they follow me. So I bust rights and lefts, lefts and rights. Till I stop seeing those Impala headlights Then I circle my block to make sure it's smooth Before I go upstairs to my four-cornered room I sit alone in my dirty-ass room Staring at candles, high on drugs So you were um, pulled over making an illegal U-turn uh, by uh, undercover police um, They searched your car, found an unlicensed pistol and you ended up with a plea bargain that put you in prison for three years. Um, what kind of headspace were you in before you went into prison? I was in a bad, bad headspace. I was like heading in a, in a, in a self-destructive direction, man. Um, I was drinking a lot, smoking a lot of weed, um, real uh, arrogant and cocky and just my priority wasn't wasn't together it wasn't in order you know i was just in a bad place man at that at that time 
So me getting locked up was actually a blessing for me. I look at it as a blessing because it helped, you know, to uh, for me to see the light. Once you get the, you know, the, the rug snatched from under you, you know, I got my career, my family snatched from me, and, and I was forced to just sit there in that box for three years and think about what I did and how selfish I was and all that, and how foolish I was. You know, it made me really see things and with new eyes, like, hold up, man. Why was I doing that? What the hell was I thinking about? Um, I put all this in jeopardy, put myself in jeopardy, like, I got to change. Something got to give. And I can't ever come back in this place again. So, you know, that's what it was. Three years is a long time. Did Did those changes take a long time to take root in you? No, actually, I started on that, like, immediately, you know. My plan was, you know, clean myself out mentally, physically, spiritually, you know, come out physically stronger, working out every day and get my body in shape so I could be in, like, excellent condition and read a lot, get my mind sharp, you know, work out that brain muscle and, um, just like repair my relationship with God and you know my and you know cleanse my spirit a little bit cuz uh I needed that because I was always like real back and forth about the whole you know religion and God and you know that come from me just dealing with that pain when I was young and, and just growing up living that particular street lifestyle um you know it brought my relationship with God and the question many times. So I wanted to repair that and fix that. And that's what I went in and did. I did all of that. You know, I wrote many albums and all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, the most important part was just fixing my my mind, body, and my soul, getting it together. Like really getting it together where, you know, I could have a future and, and a successful future. You know what I mean? It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the rapper Prodigy. Here's Stronger. It's a beautiful track from his Ellsworth Bumpy Johnson EP with a very pretty sample of one of my favorite Nina Simone songs. The moonlight shines on the New York skyline. Midtown is lit up. The city is mine. As I drive across Queens Bridge, I see it clearly from my POV. This is fact, not theory. Yeah, that rapper got money, but that rapper can't walk through this concrete jungle because he's doing it wrong. New York belongs to Don P. You can have the rest of the world. I'm good with these streets. Skyscrapers and housing buildings. I know about London, but I prefer Brooklyn. I know about Marseille, but I prefer Queens. And why you hire cops, I prefer my team. I got a powerful army. It's no need for a gun. You want hardcore rap? Up with the right one. This is maximum strength. It's no need for drugs. You want reality rap? Homie, you got the right one. I'm strong enough to take the pain. Tell me a little bit about, about writing this record. That record right there was like my way of showing people like that I could overcome any obstacle. I got a strong heart, strong-minded, strong-willed, that regardless of anything that happens, any obstacles in my way, I'm going to make it work. Prodigy, government name Albert Johnson, 
of Mob Deep. We spoke in 2011, just after he released his autobiography, My Infamous Life. His newest book is actually a street novella called HNIC. It's available now through his new imprint for Akashic Books. The imprint features urban fiction and is called Infamous. Stand tall, wipe the dirt off My clothes when I fall down, I'm way too strong This is my town, my subways and sidewalks I done ran through these gutters like a tunnel rat Park, waist deep, inside of the ish In the midst of the action where people get hit Look, Strong enough to take the pain Inflicted again What do they call me? My name is Strong, Strong, Strong. Yeah, you ain't never been touched means you don't participate within the era of it. You stay comfortably distant from pain affliction. Meanwhile, flirting with death, she put her lipstick. Every week on Bullseye, we get some pop culture recommendations from our critics. This week, we're not doing new stuff. We're doing all-timers with Carolyn Kellogg from the L.A. Times. Hey, Carolyn. Hi, Jesse. Um, so let's start, since you are from the L.A. Times, and we are in Los Angeles, where this program is headquartered with a great L.A. book, Raymond Chandler's Farewell, My Lovely. First of all, for folks who haven't read a lot of hard-boiled fiction. Tell me a little bit about the book. Raymond Chandler's um, Farewell, My Lovely is one of his classics that got made into a film. But one of the beautiful things about Raymond Chandler is his language. In Farewell, My Lovely, Raymond Chandler is kind of at his best at distilling these hard-boiled metaphors. Can I pull out a piece of paper? Yeah, sure. I needed a drink. I needed a lot of life insurance. I needed a vacation. I needed a home in the country. What I had was a coat, a hat, and a gun. I put them on and went out of the room. <laughs> it's just so hard-boiled. And then this is the best one ever. It was a blonde, a blonde to make a bishop kick a hole in a stained-glass window. <laughs> Do you think there's something particularly Los Angeles-y about the book? I mean, why is this noir novel set in a place that's famous for being bright and beautiful. I think that's one of the beautiful things about noir is that it took Los Angeles's uh, shiny side and showed the darkness. Raymond Chandler writes with, with such a brokenhearted bitterness that you can only feel that betrayed by a place if you once loved it. And that light and dark together, I think, is at the heart of noir, particularly Raymond Chandler's books. Now, let's go from some high, low culture to some straight-up high culture and Thomas Pynchon's The Crying of Lot 49. I have never read The Crying of Lot 49. Uh, perhaps you could begin by telling me what the deal is with it. Um, it's one of Thomas Pynchon's shortest books, and Pynchon is a very dense and brilliant writer. So a short book is a great place to start if you haven't read Gravity's Rainbow. And it is set in Southern California in the end of the 60s, and it is about a vast conspiracy that may or may not exist that a woman named Oedipa Moss turns up when she's named the executor of an ex-boyfriend's estate. It seems like one of the appealing things about Pynchon is is a sort of aesthetic experience. What do you mean by that? 
Well, you talk about his super dense language. I mean, people just get super into that. <laughs> well, this book is is like full of stupid puns. I mean, like Edipa Moss's uh, husband is a radio guy, and he goes by Mucho Moss. <laughs> That's like his on air name. So this is this is like Pynchon being really goofy, but at the same time, some of those insidious ideas about there being a vast network that may or may not make sense around you are right there, right underneath the surface. Do you feel like there's a vast network surrounding you that may or may not make sense? I feel like I'm tied into all these wires right now. (laughs) Carolyn Kellogg writes about books for the LA Times. Thanks, Carolyn. Thank you, Jesse. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week at the end of the show, I suggest one thing that's worth your time. It's The Outshot. In a miracle, you get food to eat. You won't have to run through the jungle and scuff up your feet. It takes some serious guts for a white seer songwriter to write a hymn extolling the pleasures of slavery. But that's just what the Randy Newman song Sail Away is. One day, Newman heard the story of Amazing Grace. It turns out it was written by a slaver who became an abolitionist. It's kind of a beautiful story. Randy Newman, though, heard that, and then he wondered what it might have sounded like without the redemption. And he wrote a beautiful, moving song. A beautiful, moving song from the cruel, twisted perspective of a man who was actually pitching the virtues of slavery. Sail away. Sail away. We will cross the mighty ocean in the Charleston Bay. Sail away. On the surface, it's beautiful, and underneath, it's funny and kind of sickening. And when you hear it, it forces you to remember that the character arcs of most 18th century Americans were not redemptive. Things, to be frank, were pretty screwed up. A lot of folks think of Randy Newman as the guy who wrote the theme to The Natural. Or, you know, who who writes the sweet songs that run at the end of Pixar films. He plays You've Got a Friend in Me at his shows. And then when he's done, he sighs and he says... Of course, it's all a load of bull****, isn't it? The LP Sail Away, which has the song Sail Away on it, is the perfect example of the breadth and the grace of Newman's art as a songwriter. There's the gleeful political science in which Newman lays out his beautifully nuanced foreign policy ideas. It's a fit of rhetorical irony that may not have been matched since. Not all the songs are jokes, though. There's one called He Gives Us All His Love. It's a hymn that is so plain and non-ironic, it almost seems like it might be a trick. But I don't think it is. Now if you need someone to talk to 
You can always talk to him. Newman was a songwriter before he was a recording artist, and he almost always writes in character. But the character almost always reveals Newman. His songs convince you that the confessional isn't the only form of authenticity in songwriting. I love Simon Smith and the Amazing Dancing Bear, another song from Sail Away, which was a big hit in the UK for an act called the Alan Price Set before Newman recorded it himself. There's something about the way that Newman teases out the cruelty of show business in the second verse. It leaves me awed every time. Seeing that the nicest places were well-fed faces all stopped to stare. Making the grandest entrance of Simon Smith in his dancing belly lovers. Won't they defeat us? Don't they? Oh, who would think a boy in bear could be well except everywhere? It's just amazing how fair people can be. When he writes a film score or a Pixar song, Randy Newman draws on this deep emotional reservoir. He makes something gentle and plain and often beautiful. I think the great mistake, though, would, would be to think that when he writes as a character or with irony, that his work is somehow any less sincere. Irony, after all, is a way of revealing the truth. And there's a lot of truth in Randy Newman's Sail Away. After all, if God hands you a river that's on fire, like the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland, how can you write anything but a beautiful love song about that terrifying, horrifying, mind-bending irony? There's a red moon rising on the That's my outshot. There's an oil barge winding down the Cuyahoga River, rolling into Cleveland to the lake. There's an oil barge winding down the Cuyahoga River, rolling into Cleveland to the lake. That's it for this week's Bullseye, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Editing help this week from Chris Berube. Our intern is Henry Malofsky. Interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Bullseye's theme music is provided by the Go Team, thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. You can find this show and 
all of our past Bullseye shows for free online at MaximumFun.org, where you can use our web player, or you can subscribe to our podcast or grab individual episodes in iTunes or whatever podcasting software you like to use. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me, jesse at MaximumFun.org, or share them on our forum at forum.maximumfun.org. And if you live in L.A. and you want to become part of the Bullseye team, apply now for a fall internship. Visit MaximumFun.org slash internships for details. That's MaximumFun.org slash internships. That's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.